0: Uh, at the topic of prayer, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. We're going to uh, look at a parable that's only in this gospel, and we're going to think about what our prayer life is like uh, and some of the ways we might view uh, prayer that have a big, big impact on our lives as Christians. Uh, now, one of the realities to set this up that we have to uh, have in our mind as we think about and talk about the church, the Big C Church, the Global Historic Christian Church, is that we live in what we like to call the already and the not yet. Many people use that language. I've used that language here a bunch. Um, Now, we know that there is a not yet aspect of life with God, right? Uh, And living in the not yet of the kingdom of heaven, which is the period of time before Jesus returns and the inauguration of his Uh, everlasting kingdom, which is where we are now, living in that in-between time, that not-yet time, is not easy. Um, It's because as Christians, we also live in the now of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is here. That's what Jesus' ministry was about. He was telling everybody the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, and, And so... Uh, Jesus has come and with that comes his kingdom. Uh, he himself declared this, just one chapter back of where we are today. if you look at Luke 17:21, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so when Jesus Jesus comes the kingdom and those who believe in him and as the Bible says, are in him are members of the kingdom. And so, the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God, we've used this definition before, is the people of God in the place of God under the rule of God. Now, this creates tension for us, right? Because we want to enjoy the now of the kingdom, but we're living in the not yet of the kingdom, and that makes us different from the rest of the world. It makes us sojourners. It makes us outsiders in this kingdom. We are seated with God, Ephesians 2 says, in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1 says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So both being seated in and being blessed by the kingdom are present realities. You are right now, if you know and love Jesus, seated in the kingdom of heaven, and you have access to all the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, right? So therefore, we're commanded to set our minds on things that are eternal, or the not yet, Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So we're also called to live out the radical ethics of the kingdom of which we're a part right now as we wait for that kingdom that's still coming. As we live in the already, but also the not yet. Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So that's the already. Here's what it does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the tension for us in the not yet is huge. And this is a big tension for us. Jesus referred to this in his words Uh, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. That's in Luke 17. And so this longing to see the kingdom of God is going to stand in stark contrast to kind of the casual neglect of the kingdom of heaven by our culture in particular, but really by any culture that has existed uh, on this earth. Most people could simply just care less about the kingdom of heaven. Most people who who don't know and love Jesus don't really, it's not a thing. Because it's not right in front of us. Some even mock. Peter warned us in 2 Peter 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with what? They're scoffers, they come with scoffing, right? (laughs) Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These are people who just say, yeah, there's nothing outside of this life. Like, this is just, people live, they die, that's it. There's nothing else. And so for the last 2,000 years, the question has been, how are we supposed to live in the not yet as we await the return of Jesus, we would say our coming king, right? And so Jesus addressed this question with a parable that we only find, as I say, in Luke. It says this in Luke 18, verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So, not like every parable, but in this parable, the the purpose is explicit. Luke just tells us right there, we don't have to guess at what the central message of this parable is, although there's a lot for us to unpack in it. Jesus' disciples are to continue praying until he comes back. We never stop praying. We never give up on prayer. So, let's read this little parable together, then we're going to spend a few minutes breaking it down. Luke chapter 18, again, verses 1 through 8. The parable of the persistent widow. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, it's a simple story in terms of the content of the story. There's a poor widow. She's suffering an injustice. We don't know what, but she was suffering at the hands of an oppressor. That's what we find out in this text. In the same town as this is going on, there is a judge who couldn't care less about God or people, and he doesn't care about her, and he's brazen about it. He admits, he says, he doesn't care about God or people, and for a while, he doesn't do anything about this widow. And so in the story, Jesus says that she keeps coming to him over and over and over until finally, because he selfishly wants to be left alone, he gives in and gives her what she wants. So, the important thing to understand with a parable is that we need to understand its lesson for us. This is a time when you can put yourself into the text and go, What does this have to say for me? Right? A lot of times we sit around Bible studies and somebody says, Well, what do you think it means to you? And it's like, It doesn't matter what it means to you, it means what it means. But this is a time in a parable when you look at it and you go, What does this have to say? To me, this is Jesus teaching us a lesson. So on the surface, this might seem like the lesson of the parable is what? If we keep bugging God, eventually he'll hear us and our requests will be granted. right? It kind of seems like what Jesus is saying. It seems like that that Jesus wants us to just bother God kind of mindlessly. And, And many have kind of interpreted this parable this way. But, but this is a problem because, actually, the lesson of this parable is about contrast. The, the lesson of this parable is about contrast. Here are the two contrasts, is what we're going to talk about. God is not like the judge, and you are not like the widow. Okay? So then, the lesson about prayer is that our prayers have to actually look different than those of this nameless, faceless widow. If we were to think that what we need to do is bother God until He gives us what we want we end up having an inadequate, stunted view of prayer. We're missing it. So let's first look at the judge. The judge admits in the parable that he does not fear God or care about men. That's verse 4. If he was a Jew, this would be openly defying the primary qualification to be a judge, which is the fear of God. Uh, We see this in 2 Chronicles when King Jehoshaphat uh, takes steps to kind of restore order to God's people. And he says this in Second Chronicles 19. Uh, he's appointing judges with these words. Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Now that's specifically to judges But I think it's okay to say that the principles of that kind of character apply to anybody who wants to lead God's people. This is what it looks like. Let the fear of the Lord guide you. Now, on top of all that, a judge with no fear of God is not going to have any kind of universal, outside of himself, ethical boundaries that are going to to sort of rein in his wickedness. Right? Right? He's going to have this mistaken belief that he'll never stand before God, and so that relieves him of any burden he might have to to render just decisions. And so the judge in the parable is this kind of judge, and so he is capable of basically everything except justice. And so the contrast then is that God is not like that. God is loving and good and gracious and merciful and most of all, just. There is no partiality with Him. There is no injustice with Him. And so not only is God all of those good things, but you have to think about this when you want to think about the character of God. He is all of those character traits to infinite power. He he is holy and just infinitely. He is loving infinitely. There is no part of God's character that is not infinite or else He would cease to be God. And so justice is God's very nature. He can't be anything but perfectly just. And so not only is God an infinitely just God, but we also know that unlike this judge in the story, he is also a loving, kind father. Now, that father word picture is meant to portray relationship to us. That's what it's meant to portray. He's not a distant, careless judge. So Jesus wants, to, wants us to see the contrast between this judge and God, our Father. That that's the judge. Now, the widow. The second thing about the story is we, we're contrast, we, as God's people, are contrasted with this nameless, faceless widow. Uh, as those who are the ones asking for our requests to, to God, right? who's our good father. We're not like the widow. We're not nameless people who have no relationship to an evil judge. That's a contrast. See, widows are among the most defenseless people in Hebrew society, and maybe in all of society even now. The Old Testament refers to their being oppressed, taken advantage of. They were often victims of legal maneuvering, Uh, and this is the case for this poor woman. It's probably likely that she was one of those who was later described in Luke as a victim of men who, quote, devour widows' houses. This is people coming after those who don't have any recourse and taking their stuff, right? You've you've never heard that story before, though, right? The poor getting taken advantage of, still happening. So this parable has application even to our day. The poor woman, what we see, doesn't seem to want vengeance, though. She just wants restorative justice. That's what she wants, and so the options for getting that for this person, for getting what we might call redress, right, for, or justice from a rogue judge are very, very few. She doesn't have a lot of options. She probably doesn't have money, so bribing is probably not on the table. And knowing this guy, he'd take the money and say, "Now nah, I'm not going to do it anyway. Uh, she probably isn't able to threaten him. He's a lot more powerful than her. And so the last choice that she has is kind of just to, to beg him, to put pl- a pathetic plea. And and that's what she goes with. Every day she begs him to help her. Now the language here is interesting. This is not her just scheduling court appearances and pleading her case in front of him. The language here is saying she's probably bothering him everywhere. She's showing up at his house. She's bumping into him at the market. She's uh, asking him in front of his colleagues, on the street, in front of his friends. Like she's relentless. And so her chances are very slim with this godless, hardened, cynical guy. But it's the only thing that she can do. And so we think to ourselves, when this story, we read the story, think, man, this slave, this poor lady, this evil judge is not going to budge. Sometimes in this world there is no justice. But the contrast is that we are not insignificant nobodies like the widow in this parable. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. As Christians, we are called God's children. We have unbelievable, unrestricted access to God by the power of Jesus' blood, unlike the widow's lack of access to this judge. So we don't imagine, in your prayer life, don't imagine that it's the sheer number of prayers that you somehow add together to make God annoyed enough with you to grant your needs. That's not prayer. We don't accumulate merit, right? You're not putting something on the scale for good and God will listen to me if I just keep bugging him with my prayers. That's not how this works. We don't accumulate merit because we keep praying the same thing over and over and over and over. This kind of thinking reveals that we view God as this unjust judge. We see him as distant and uncaring, and that is not who he is. We are God's children. We know that because of what Jesus has done for us and he hears our prayers even when, and listen to me, even when we don't feel like he's hearing anything. We trust in the truth of who God is more than we trust in how we feel when we pray. We lean not on our own understanding, but we trust in him in all our ways. So what does this mean for our prayer? Does it mean that we should never pray what some people might call fervently? That you should never Beg God for something. No, of course not. It doesn't mean that you should never do that. The teaching of the parable isn't that we're persistent because we don't have God's attention yet, but it's that we're persistent because we already have God's attention. You already have an in with God. Right? My girls, bless their hearts, because we have relationship, they feel free to pester me. Right? Because they have relationship, they know I want to listen to them. And so they come to me with their needs. This is the way it should be with us and God. We're persistent because we know that God is good. He's just. And that by our faith in what Jesus has done for us, he has brought us in, sat at his table, and he has said, I want to hear from you. Come, come and talk to me. We pray because we already know that he cares about us. So there are times when maybe we want to pray specifically for something that's happened or something that we hope will happen or something that we want not to happen. But we do so, not because we have to bother God to get him to pay attention to us, but instead, in Jesus, we know that God hears us. Now, I know that the single hardest thing for me when it comes to prayer, and I'm assuming you when it comes to prayer, is when we feel like we're praying and God is just silent. I just don't hear, it's just hitting the ceiling. I don't hear anything. Right? God, do you hear me? And again, if you feel like that, go read the Psalms. You're going to have a lot of uh, things to, to, to relate to in the Psalms. They're full of prayers like that. But in this passage in Luke, Jesus seems to make a promise that doesn't always seem true. Look at verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect? His elect is just a name for God's people. Who cry to him day and night. So there's a the fervent prayer. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them ju- he will give justice to them speedily. Okay, that's interesting. But what's important is to notice the next verse as well. Look at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Okay, so here's what you need to know about this. In this case, when we're thinking about God's sovereignty and his care for us and our prayer speedily does not mean immediately. Speedily does not necessarily mean God's going to give you what you want immediately. This is our mistake many times when we pray. We think that God will answer our prayers just how we want and just in our time. But there's really two, two really important things to realize when this is our attitude when we're thinking about prayer. First of all, and this is a simple one, you just don't get to tell God what to do or when to do it. Because you ain't God and he is. That's a simple one. But here's the second more nuanced one. If you always want God to do what you want, when you want it, you're revealing that what you actually trust is your own wisdom and not God. And that's a dangerous place to be because, and even if you're even a somewhat reasonable person, you know this to be true, you don't know that much in the grand scheme of things. I don't know that much in the grand scheme of things, right? I think the biggest lesson as you move from teenager to young adulthood to roughly about 30 years old is you start going, huh, I really don't know that much. And that seems to just keep happening. And about that age, you start to go, man, my parents were kind of right about stuff. Maybe I don't know everything. And so why would I want everything to work in my way and in my timing? When we look back on this life from eternity, we are going to see that this is short. This is nothing, the time in this life. That a long time in this life is nothing compared to the time in eternity. So what seems like a long time of God not answering you, of God being silent, will seem like a short time when you're looking back on it from eternity. So why is it that God is sometimes silent? Well, here's three things, three ideas I just want to leave you with. Sometimes the silence of God is a loving no from a good father who knows better than us what we need or what is the greatest good. It's an easy example from my life because I use that word a lot right now with my kids. They come, they want candy 18 times a day. And I have to lovingly say, listen, I know that candy's awesome, it is. But you can't eat that many uh, candy bars, you're going to get a stomachache. They don't believe me. They think I'm wrong. But But I know more than that. And so sometimes the silence of God... Is a loving no from a good father who knows better than us. The Apostle Paul asked God over and over and over to remove what he called a thorn in his flesh, but God lovingly tells him, No, because it's better for you to keep this weakness so you'll stay close and depend on me. He says, My power is made perfect in your weakness. I'm gonna keep the thorn in your flesh. So here's a question: Are you praying what God wants and what God wills? Are you praying in accordance with the scriptures? If not, then you should probably expect to experience the loving silence of no from God, your loving Father. The second thing is that sometimes silence means that God has something very different and maybe very much bigger and more amazing than you could have ever dreamed of or asked for. Oswald Chambers, who's a famous Christian author, said this. Some prayers are followed by silence because they are wrong. Others, because they are bigger than we can understand It will be a wonderful moment for some of us when we stand before God and find that the prayers we clamored for in early days and imagined were never answered have been answered in the most amazing way. And that God's silence has been the sign of his answer. So what if God has an answer to your prayer that is so crazy and beyond your spiritual maturity right now that you can't even imagine it if he tried to explain it to you and you wouldn't even believe him? Sometimes he's silent because he's at work doing some amazing stuff in things way out outside of your life that are going to have an effect a a long time from now. He's just going to wait and let you see. And that brings us to the third thing is that sometimes God uses the time that we have to wait for him, and this is very often, as a season of growing us in a very profound way. So that we learn to depend on him even more than we did in the past. And the alliance, we we would probably call this a crisis experience of faith.
1: God is always working to grow you.
0: He's always working. But there are times when that growth happens in a very poignant way. Those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, that probably just popped into your head. And many times that happens when we're going through something that drives us to beg God to work. It's in that moment of asking and seeking Him that He grows our dependence on Him. Sometimes we graciously come to the end of our ability to fix a problem, or fix a situation, or do anything for anybody. And so we have to depend on God. And sometimes God will leave you there for a while, because you're stubborn, right? Some of us like to do what the Bible says, to <coughs> kick against the goats. We like to just say, no God, I know what to do. And He's like, alright, well, I'll be back tomorrow, I'll check on me." and sometimes God does those things for us so that we can grow in that moment there are times of silence what some have called the dark night of the soul in kind of Christian spirituality and and also there are times when we grow in our maturity and our prayers become more like the prayers that God wants from us I wonder if you uh, journal which I I did for a while I, I don't journal very much but I had a period of time a period like this where I was journaling When I go back and read that journal, I'm like, man, God really... I don't pray like that anymore. My prayers have grown and changed and shifted because God has been at work in me. And so if God had answered those prayers according to our schedule, our prayers would not have been shaped by the Holy Spirit, would not have been shaped by the character of God as much as they are now, for our actual greater good and for His glory. And so when Jesus tells this parable, He tells it in the context of of teaching his disciples about the reality that he will return, that that not yet is coming when he returns. And this is what makes sense out of that last part of the text we looked at. Look at verse eight, the end of it. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, when he find faith on the earth. This question implies that this faith will not be found unless we as disciples are learning to pray as described in verse one. So unless we pray without losing heart, like we ought to, we will not be found to be in the faith when he returns. So a life of continual prayer is two things. Okay, It's two things. First, it's the evidence of faith in Jesus. A person who never prays is a person who does not know Jesus. That's just as simple as it is. If you're like, I think I'm a Christian, but I never pray, you're not. But you can be. Come to Jesus. A person, if you know Jesus, you'll pray. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. But also, what he's teaching us is that this is the way that we build up our faith in him. It's like a workout for our souls. We never stop praying. If we want strong souls that can withstand the problems of this world, we have to be praying people. God is not like the unjust judge who we have to bother until he does what is right. He is a just and a loving and a good father who not only wants us to come talk, he invites us, he delights when we come and pray and bring our needs to Him. And we are not like the nameless widow, but instead we're the children of God who can come to Him in dependence on Him, knowing that He hears us. He hears us. Not only that He hears us, but that He, again, delights to do what is right when we ask Him. So we keep praying because God hears you. We keep praying because this is how we keep the faith. We keep praying because it's right. And we keep praying because it's good, so we keep praying. So, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not somebody we have to go find and bother and get something out of you that you don't want to give to us. But instead, you're right here with us. You're near to us. You're not far from any of us. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would birth in us a desire to just sit in the quiet with you and listen for your voice. That we would also bring our requests to you. Father, if there are needs that we have, that we would pray fervently for those. But not that we would pray that you would do what we want when we want it, but instead, Lord, that you would change our wills to see that what you do is what is right and we want that. Lord, would you give us uh, a week of, of bringing glory to you and and praying and being with you as we go out from here today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.